I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Anne-Marie Cade is a lawyer, also a mediator specialising in complex relationship and family law issues, and a member of her local municipal council. Today, Anne-Marie talks about conflict in its many forms, how even the best can be brought undone, and some simple truths. Anne-Marie Cade, welcome. You've got a slightly different legal practice. Would you like to tell us about it? So I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a mediator, and I call myself conflict resolution specialist. So I do run a legal practice, and I practice in family law, but I take a very different approach. I try and assist couples to reach a resolution in a respectful way and ensure that they have an understanding of each other's wants and needs moving forward and be able to respectfully co-parent. So that's the focus of what I do. And I found that I could do that better as a mediator. So I do have a legal practice, but I also work as a mediator. And when I do work as a mediator, I'm able to work with both parties. Because that's not the traditional model, isn't it? There's been a lot of changes over the years in family law with no-fault divorce and things like that. So it is theoretically supposed to work cleanly, but what are the dynamics that mean that it doesn't end well, I suppose, for many couples? I think what's really important is that when you do decide to separate, that you get started correctly. What happens now is that uh, people tend to lawyer up and then it becomes you versus me scenario where one trying to get the better of the other. And it's really driven by those heightened emotions. What I talk about is trying not to drive that conflict. But as lawyers, we need to advocate for our clients. So that sometimes means saying very nasty things about the other person so our clients look good. But when I act as a mediator, I work with both parties and I'm hearing the same story and they're telling me their story together. So it gives them the opportunity to actually have a conversation. And when you're in conflict with someone, sometimes it's really hard to have a discussion. But when you are working with a mediator who's facilitating that conversation and there are certain ground rules you are able to actually get to a better resolution. But for many people, Anne-Marie, there's no trust at the time of separation and the natural instinct is to go and find the person, the lawyer, who's going to act in your interests and let the other person get whatever baseball bat they want to get and go through the process that you just described. How can people be in a mindset in a relationship where there's a lack of trust to trust the other party and trust the mediator to ensure that everyone gets the best outcome? So that's a really great question. And I get asked that quite a lot. 
obviously there's a breakdown in the trust between the parties. That's why they have got to where they have got to, right? And the reason for that is often because there's been a breakdown in communication. So uh, tied into that is a lot of uh, unmet expectations and a lot of resentment that has built up. So the work of the mediator is actually to get an understanding of the understory of those parties. And that is what is critical. And as a mediator, when I work with uh, both of them, I first have an intake session with each of them individually. And at that intake session, they're given the opportunity to tell me their version of events or their story. And then as part of that intake process, I coach them on how to have that conversation. So that intake is a critical part of the mediation process. And I think sometimes mediations fail because there hasn't been sufficient work done coaching the couple as to how to approach this conversation. So sometimes, even if I'm not acting as a mediator, some people come to me for coaching. And as part of that coaching, I do a lot of work with them on managing conflict and how to approach the conversation because we don't learn how to communicate in that constructive way. We tend to react rather than respond. So what would be some typical barriers, if you like, that might be a bit of a sign to you that someone's not ready for mediation? What are the sort of hurdles that an individual will need to jump over so that they'll be an effective participant? So if they come and see me and they're positional and they tell me, look, I want the house and I want 50%, I work with them to get an understanding of what their needs are and explain to them that in a mediation, they've got to look at options and not come to the table with what they want and be positional, but rather have come with the mindset of being able to negotiate. And I often tell my couples that I work with, you've got to reach an agreement that you can live with because we're trying to get to a win-win situation. If you go to court, it's win-lose and you might end up having a judge make a decision for your family. Your family is unique. Only you know your needs and wants. So, you know, enabling them to reach a resolution that they can live with. And I think that is what is critical. So if you go to court, you might end up with the judge making an order that you've lost control over. What's wrong with compromise then? Because often we talk about compromise. It is about compromising and it's about looking at options. And it's not about getting everything you want. So it just depends on the unique needs of the family. And it's about give and take. And I think that's the beauty of the mediation. And you've got to be in that mindset. And you can get in that mindset when you've had the correct coaching and you work with someone and you've been educated on that process. So, Anne-Marie, you talked about win-win. For someone involved in a mediation, how should they approach that project in terms of understanding their needs and the needs of someone else? I think in a mediation, it's really important to get curious about the needs of the other party. Because often when they are in conflict, it's never about what it seems to be. There's always an understory. And sometimes there's underlying fear, right, which is not talked about. So The whole idea in the mediation or the conversation is about getting 
an understanding of what that understory is and asking those relevant questions. Because if we ask someone a question and we preface it with why, why are you feeling this way? They're going to get defensive. So rather than using the word why, use words like how and what and tell me more. And then get curious about what the issues are. And then people are going to be more open to that discussion. But that sort of style of open questioning really requires some practice, doesn't it? Because it's very... Of course. (laughs) (laughs) It does require a lot of practice and there are different techniques. Now, there's a particular technique called looping for understanding that Gary Friedman actually talks about. And he teaches this. Now, he's a very famous mediator in the US. He's taught mediation and conflict management in Stanford and Harvard. And it starts with listening. So listening very, very closely and intently. And we're talking of active listening here. And not just listening with your ears, but listening with your heart. And that is not easy because often if you are in a conversation and sometimes there's heightened emotions involved, you're almost reframing your answer uh, before the other person has completed their sentence. So you really missed out on what they have said. So really practicing that art of active listening, I think is key. And he talks about looping for understanding. So Listen and then in the most articulate language, reframe back to the person what you heard them say and check whether you have got it correctly or you've heard them and understood what their concerns are. And more often than not, you may not have really understood what they intended saying. And when you repeat it back to them, they realize that, no, that's not what I meant. And this is what I meant. And then the back and forth enables you to really get to the crux of what the issues are. So much in that answer. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned Gary Friedman because we're going to come back and talk about your parallel lives in a little while. So thank you for that. Effectively, you seem to be saying, listen to understand, not listen to respond. Yes. And it seems, Emery, there's a certain power that comes with that increased understanding in terms of being in control of the outcomes that suit the participant. Yes, of course, because the thing is, if we are not listening very closely for that and getting an understanding, there's, I say there's always a lot lost in translation all the time because we're just too quick to jump to a conclusion. But the curiosity is so important. You need to clarify, ask those questions. When I work with couples going through divorce and separation, when there's a breakdown in communication, what happens is they don't want to talk about certain issues. So it's easier to just ignore that, those issues. And that is a recipe for disaster because what happens there is the resentment starts building and then there's frustration. Then it's just gone too far and then they just throw in the table. So isn't that an issue then? Because presumably there's a temptation to be caught in the moment of the dispute, if you like, like we've Mm -hmm. made a decision to separate, we're in the mediation. At some point, there's got to be a resolution. What do you do about the consequences of the resolution about helping people to live with the outcomes? Yes. So now that's a key part of the work that I do. I actually, at the moment, I'm researching a post-divorce dispute resolution process called parenting coordination, which is very, very new in Australia. Now, I was awarded the Churchill Fellowship in 2020 to research parenting coordination. So in a nutshell, parenting coordination is a process where 
a dispute resolution practitioner who is called a parenting coordinator is appointed by the court to work with a couple to help them navigate that interparental conflict, minimize it, and actually work and help them interpret what's set out in those parenting orders. Because parenting orders, sometimes there's a lot of gray area there. However, a well drafted, it's not going to provide for every eventuality. With kids especially, things change all the time. So having a parenting coordinator is akin to having like a fire extinguisher in your home, right? Dispute arises and you are finding it hard to have the conversation with your former partner. You call on the parenting coordinator and part of the work the parenting coordinator does is to help those parties resolve that dispute, uh, use mediation, and also a lot of the work is education. So really teaching these parents on how to communicate better. Rather than, because it is very easy to blame the other party, presumably. It's always their fault. Of course, of course. And research shows us that 20% of most divorces end up being high-conflict divorces. That 20% takes up 80% of the court's time. Because people keep re-litigating those very minor issues, which often are non-legal issues. It is to do with change of parenting attitudes. And, you know, it gets all blown out of proportion. So when you have someone like a parenting coordinator in your corner, that can be so useful. And it will actually change the face of co-parenting as we know it now. Avoid a whole lot of problems. Now, let's go back to Gary Friedman because you and him have led parallel lives, I suppose, Anne-Marie. You made a decision to run for candidacy at your local council, as did Gary. We'll talk about him in a minute. What were you thinking? So I have lived and worked in my local area since I moved to Australia 18 years ago. I never thought that I would run for local council, but I ran a legal practice in this area and I knew a lot of people in the area. And I found that people were constantly picking holes with what council did, you know, as we all do. So we we sit on the sidelines and we tend to criticize. And then what happened was I ran in 2016, but I didn't get in in 2016. But then there was a count back in 2019 and quite unexpectedly, I got a call one morning from the election commission and said, look, you've been elected. And it came as quite a surprise. So I was kind of thrown into the deep end, as it were. And it was very, very challenging. But I have grown to love what I do because I feel that if you really want to make a difference and want to create change, you've got to get involved. And I think that's what drove me to do what I've done and subsequently ran for re-election. And I did get the highest number of votes in my uh, board in 2020. So I was quite pleased with that outcome. Let's talk about the link with Gary Friedman, of course, is that he decided to run for office at his local council because he saw a few problems and thought he had a skill set that might be helpful. And we'll put the link to the story in Politico called How I Got Obama'd on the show notes. What's your sort of description, Emery, of what happened to Gary when he stood for council? Yes. So we were talking about Gary Friedman a little bit earlier, and he's such a well-respected conflict resolution specialist and almost referred to sometimes as the Jedi master of conflict management. 
And in his little town in California, the people in his little town approached him and they found that it was this local authority which managed roads and the water in that area. And there was a lot of conflict and things were not going well. So they called on Gary and they said, you know, you are going to be the ideal person. Why don't you get involved? and save us, as it were. And he decided to take on the challenge. And he actually talks about those two years as the most challenging years of his life, because being the man he was and actually having such a good understanding, he got drawn into the conflict in the eighth of a second, as it were. He became defensive and aggressive and he called himself the new guard. So there was this binary mode of thinking. So he was the new guard against the old guard. And that's very dangerous when you're talking about resolving conflict because it sets the us versus them. And he found that at his town meetings, he ended up screaming and he could not believe the person he was becoming. And when he came home one day, his wife said to him, you know, we don't even know you anymore. And he was so ashamed of himself. But that is what high conflict does to you. And it's such a good lesson for all of us and something that I'm very conscious about as well. Because if you don't have the awareness, the conflict can become almost all-consuming, as Gary found. And it doesn't operate according to the normal rules of conflict. And it takes on almost a life of its own. And you tend to mimic the behavior of the people you are actually in conflict with. And that was what happened to Gary. And when he came to that realization, he did away with the old guard and the new guard, and he tried to get a better understanding of what their problems and issues were. And I think it was such a lesson and something that we can all learn from. I thought it was really interesting reading that piece that Gary talks about how he accepted offers of assistance you know, political advice and how things work and so on, and unwittingly was drawn into an existing culture and the way things are. Yeah, yeah. And also he found that he didn't have that willingness to listen, something he has been talking about, he talks about all the time, but that is what high conflict does. And I think at this stage we should, I'd like to talk possibly a little bit about the difference between high conflict, which is quite damaging, and what I call healthy conflict. Because conflict actually gets a really bad rap and we try to avoid it. We really don't want to engage in conflict, but we need good conflict. We need healthy conflict because that's when we have an exchange of ideas. We are willing to hear another person's perspective and it can get heated. It can get unpleasant, but it actually enables the exchange of ideas and a lot of innovation is born out of that good conflict. So that I think is really important. This does seem to be an emerging topic. I've heard phrases like good rumbling or having better disagreements, Like, but that sort of raising awareness of a difference between good and dysfunctional conflict, I suppose, Anne-Marie. The late Congressman John Lewis, he talked of good trouble. And that's something that's really important. And going back to a story in the US where we had John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, right, who were really, really good friends. But then Jefferson ran against Adams and they had this feud. They were called, referred to as feuding friends. And the result of that is that they did not talk for 12 years. 
actually, I think the U.S. really lost out in those 12 years because uh, there was no exchange of ideas. And then their friend Benjamin Rush came along after 12 years and thought, oh, this is just, you know, not doing anyone any good. And he actually said to each of them, you know, the other wants to talk to them. And then they started exchanging letters and they renewed that friendship. But that's what conflict does. And they died on the same day. It was such an amazing story. These are lessons that we can actually learn from. And it's something I think that's really, really important. That's a lovely sort of stepwise approach to a reconciliation, isn't it? Just to start with a letter. Of course. Yeah. And Benjamin Rush, actually, what he did was, you know, he sowed the seed and he told the other person, look, this is what is going to happen. You know, John wants to talk to you. And he said to Thomas Jefferson, you know, vice versa. And then they thought, oh, yeah. And they started this exchange of lessons and they renewed their friendship. So it seems that Benjamin Rush was able to take a very arm's length approach to managing this conflict between Jefferson and Adams. That doesn't seem like the normal situation in many cases, Emery. You're so right. And at this point, I possibly would like to talk about the conflict entrepreneur. Now, Amanda Ripley, who writes about high conflict, she's from the US. She talks about conflict entrepreneurs and who are conflict entrepreneurs they are people who actually exploit the conflict to their own ends, right? So in a divorce, it could possibly be a family member or a friend who's not able to be objective. So I often tell my clients, you know, sometimes when you're going through a divorce and separation, you have to put some friends and family on a shelf. And in everyday life, your interactions we have with people, you'll often find that there is someone there who wants to exploit the conflict to their own ends. And we term people like that conflict entrepreneurs. And sometimes you just have to avoid them. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because you just cannot get them on board. So does that include people who might genuinely be wanting to help but are not in a situation where... In fact, they can provide that arm's length advice. Yes, and more so, they're just off that mindset that they want insight, more conflict. They're not willing to have that conversation. And, you know, the media does this to some extent, right? They can be quite unrelenting in the reporting of issues that sometimes are not for the greater good, as it were. And even in a work setting, you know, sometimes you can have conflict entrepreneurs. And the way we manage that is to try and keep your distance. Let's go to the role in local government and speaking generally, of course, because your council is quite functional. The Minister for Local Government, the Honourable Sean Lean, has announced that there will be a review into the culture of local government and pointed to a range of dysfunctions and sort of behaviour that's not exactly appropriate. We're sort of expecting a discussion paper and councils will respond I suppose, and stakeholders too, I suppose, because everyone's affected. What do you think are some of the key conflict lessons that fall out of this process? So that's so interesting. And I was really so happy to hear about the fact that this report is coming out. And the review, like you said, it's into the behavior and culture on councils. And the whole intention here is to promote more positive and inclusive work environment. And I think that is so important. What I'm hoping for here is that Once the report comes out, I'd be really interested to see what he talks about. But I think from the conversations I've had with women, actually, who decide to run for local government, there's almost a fear because they 
almost don't feel very safe because there tends to be a lot of argument and sometimes it can get quite toxic. So I hope that issue is addressed and maybe there's a more awareness of the importance of really doing more education and training around conflict management and around conflict resolution, because I think that will enable better conversations. And like I was saying, you can have those healthy arguments. That means that, you know, you come up with better solution. The um, Set the Standard report by Kate Jenkins that was presented to the federal parliament in December talked about the costs of a toxic work environment and the fact that when people don't feel safe, they don't do the things that you were talking about before about having constructive, robust discussions. What are some of the things that need to happen at all levels of government, I suppose, to make for that safer environment where people do feel safe? I think it starts with listening very closely to what the other people are saying and not rushing to persuade someone of your point of view, because that can be a recipe for disaster, right? Always hear what the other side has got to say, because when they are in an argument and we are in conversation with someone and we don't exactly agree with what that other person is saying, what we do is we rush to try and persuade them of our point of view. We want to sort of shut them down. We want to shut them down and talk about what it is that our perspective is. So really engaging in constructive conversation is really, you know, having the ability to understand the other person's perspective and then coming up with creative solutions. But the basis of that is actually understanding that you have to be in control of your emotions and emotions plays such a big part in this. You know, we don't talk about it enough. But another conflict resolution specialist in the US, Bill Eddy, who does a lot of work in high conflict, he talks about being able to manage our emotions because emotions become very contagious. So when we are actually on the side, as it were, and we are having a conversation with someone we don't exactly agree with, we get defensive. And that can be not a very good approach, right? So it's about getting an understanding of the need to listen and understand another person's perspective and have an element of flexible thinking. It would seem in that sense then, Anne-Marie, that councils have to have codes of conduct and codes of conduct, we tend to focus on the the punitive elements of those codes, but that piece of work around practising listening and practising empathy is an area for great development. Of course, and I think there is not enough done in that area. I find there is an awareness now and, you know, there's a lot of tinkering around the edges. If they're running for office, I think at the moment, we're required to do complete a course. As part of that, we can have some information there on conflict management and possibly even councils run training programs for councillors and, you know, people within councils as well on conflict management, conflict resolution, because we don't learn any of this stuff in school. I didn't even learn it in law school. And I teach this now and I teach it to my law students. And, you know, they are so enamored of it because they see the usefulness in it. Yeah, which really takes us through to a higher kind of order as part of the human condition, I suppose, moves us up Maslow's triangle to actually achieving greater needs, Anne-Marie. Of course, and it's also that emotional intelligence. 
right? Uh, sometimes emotional intelligence is more important. You know, they say EQ more important than IQ. And Daniel Goldman, who writes about emotional intelligence, talks about the amygdala hijack. When we feel threatened, we go into that fight, flight, freeze. So that's a natural reaction of human beings. It's something that's not talked about enough, but something that is so critical. We really need to be aware of that because if we are aware of that, then we will take the time to think through what we say. We won't react. And of course, that will mean that we'll be making better decisions. You've drawn a really nice loop from your relationship management practice to our roles in public life and dealing with each other. Thanks so much for talking today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.